Welcome to Out With Dan, the podcast that spotlights and examines the voices of LGBTQ authors, characters, and our allies. Together, we lift our voices and we tell our stories. I'm Dan White. Join me as I chat with this week's author. Hello, and welcome back to Out With Dan. Today, I'm excited to be talking with Rupert Holmes, who is a two-time Edgar Awards winner about his new book, Murder Your Employer, The McMaster's Guide to Homicide, Volume 1. And I, to start off with, welcome, Rupert. Oh, it's a delight to be with you. Thank you so much. I understand that you're running up all the bestseller list right off the bat. Is that right? It's incredible. Um, two weeks out, uh, we went to number six on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, it's on the L.A. Times bestseller list, the Washington Post bestseller list, the Indie Bookstore bestseller list. Um, it's a it's every author's dream, and uh, this is a, a dream come true. Well, I can say that as a fanboy, it's highly deserved, one hundred percent deserved. I mean, this is delicious death in book form right here. <laughs> Give us a little idea. What is a deletion and who is a deletist? Uh, well, a, a deletion is the term, the preferred term at the, uh, first of all, as you know, this entire book is set at the McMaster's Conservatory for the Applied Arts, yes. which is a, and McMaster's is a finishing school for finishing people off. <laughs> it, is, uh, it is a poison Ivy League school. Uh, and uh, and where the students learn to do in others as you would have others do you in. So, um, and there's a whole language associated with the school. They prefer more refined terms for the homicidal arts. And so we don't murder people. That's such a subjective thing. That's a matter, you know, is it murder or do they get what they were richly deserving? So, mm-hmm. so um, they the preferred term is uh, to delete someone. It's just a little backspace in their lives. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first time I've said that. I like that. I'm going to use it in, I use it, I use it in the next volume. Watch for it soon. <laughs> I love it. So, you know, before we get into the mechanics of it, sure. has there been somebody in your life that maybe you were thinking of when you wrote this book? Well, you know, my... Uh, the. The goal in my book was to get you to be absolutely sympathetic and rooting for the three lead characters who are each going to try to commit their own deletion. And that was a challenge as an author. How can I make you root for the murderer? And so it required that the villains be the most intolerable, unacceptable. People who would make Harvey Weinstein seem like a, a swell guy. Yeah, I, well, I'm saying. I'm saying. That is true. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, so that, that was the challenge. In my own life, what's very interesting is that I thought you might ask me that question. <laughs> and I thought about the worst of my three villains. And, um, and his name is Merrill Fiedler. And he is an atrocity to mm-hmm. all people. And by the way, he's not just bad a, a villain to my hero, Cliff Iverson, who in the audiobook is voiced by uh, Neil Patrick Harris. By the oh, way. I love it. I oh, love yeah. it. So when you, when you read it. it, you can hear that voice. Um, um, but but uh, not only is he dangerous to my hero, but he um, was responsible for the death of the, of the woman that my hero was in love with. And also 
He is a manufacturer of airplanes who looks the other way at safety measures that could threaten the lives of literally thousands of people. And he won't. And because it might cost a little money and, and make him admit he made a mistake, he just overlooks it and r runs down anyone who tries to blow the whistle. So he's despicable. His name is Merrill Fiedler. And I thought, well, who in my life have I ever worked for that I don't like? And I searched my mind back to the very beginning of my career where, where I ran into a, a film producer who in the editing room, when I was writing the music for a motion picture he had produced, and he decided to cut the music in himself. And it was the most unbearable two days of my life. Oh. He just, any time that, if a person twitched, if they blinked and I didn't have a flute cue happening on that <laughs> blink, he said, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's gone wrong? This doesn't work. And that's not how you underscore a movie. You don't make every single little movement have its own little, every single movement has meaning all its own, but not music all its own. And I thought, what was that guy's name? And I thought back and I suddenly realized, and it was only yesterday that I thought this, his first name was Merrill. I named my villain after him. It's very unusual spelling, M-E-R-R-I-L-L. -L, and it must have been in my subconscious the whole time. So that's a person where I would have been happy uh, had he not been born in the for those two days. I also, worked on a, I also worked on a movie called A Star is Born, not the most recent version, but the one with Barbara Streisand and uh, Chris Christopherson. I wrote some of the songs in that movie. And, um, and there was a person associated with that film who not only I would have liked to have killed, but he tried to kill me with a pair of scissors, which was pretty apt considering his former profession was that of a hairdresser. So, and you can probably put two and two together and figure out who that may have been. So that's as far as I'll go without naming names. <laughs> I love that. I love that. <laughs> Speaking of voices, one thing I did notice in your book is, you, as an author, you have the ability not only to give each character a voice, but a voice that I could hear. Mrs. Forage was one that, she was a small character, but a character that I could instinctively hear her voice. Do you find that in all of your writing? Is that natural for you to have each voice to sound different? Yeah, you know what? I think I think it's a blessing that comes from my deep musical background. You know, I did an interview with the uh, the New York Times. I'm not trying to plug the Times here, okay, but I did that. By, I did that by the book interview that they do, where they ask you what literary figures you might have to dinner. And one of the questions they asked me was, um, "You yourself are a musician and novelist, which is not the automatic pairing." No. They said, oh, "Do you have any other favorite musicians who are novelists or writers of some sort?" And I said, "You know, to me, my answer was generally um, all." good writers, I'm hoping that I am a good one, um, are musicians and their characters are musical. Mm -hmm. um, they, If every character in your book sounds the same on the page, you're not believing in your characters enough. Someone once said to me, could you make Glen Gary Glen Ross, could you make that into a musical? And I said, well, Glen Gary Glen Ross is a musical. There's no orchestra, but the voices of these characters is, and I said, good writers include the flats and the sharps and the clams and the bloops of language. Some people mangle the language and that's their instrument. Some people are eloquent. So one of my narrators is British to the core, a, 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 an esteemed professor, and he sounds like such. 
Whereas my hero, Cliff Iverson, is an aeronautical designer, a nice guy, and he's not given to the same flowery language that, that the other narrator is. And, and I have my Hollywood uh, diva, um, uh, and, and she's, she talks like, you know, she was studied the Betty Davis School for Language. You know, someone <laughs> says, uh, what did you say? I'm sorry, I was buried in thought. And she says, yes, and I'm sure it was a shallow grave. And that's that's how she talks. So, and and Gemma, uh, my uh, other mur murdering student, uh, who's just a, a, a wonderful human being, um, and who's being blackmailed, and and uh, there's no worse crime than that. Um, she talks like a real feeling British person who came, whose ancestry was from Trinidad, and I incorporate all of that into choosing what word she uses and which she avoids. So, yeah, I think I've been lucky in that I, in my musical, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, I did all the orchestrations myself, and you don't write a flute the same way you write for a French horn, for a bass clarinet, for a violin. You, you choose the timbre of that instrument and go to that strength. So I'm very pleased if you, feel the, if you can hear the characters' voices, because I sure can when I'm writing them. And I think that's that is yet another layer to your talent because that is something that I mean I find that I read a lot of books and I find a lot of people have great voicing, but to have the ability to give that voice an instrument I think is truly a talent that you possess, Rupert. It is something that I noticed all through this, and of course the puns are really punny yeah. and fun and funny, and and you take. What is deletion, which is something that's a serious thing in real life, but you take this with a lot of humor and a lot of fun, but you also put a, a, a great seriousness to it that isn't, it isn't morbid. It's a fun seriousness. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, Hitchcock said, some people make movies that are a slice of life. My movies are a slice of cake. And this is sort of a slice of cake novel, but at the core of it, each person is aware that they are doing this immense thing. You know, I, 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 in a droll fashion, the, the dean tends to be droll, and he's the worst. <laughs> he's he commits the most serious uh, puns, and and which, and sometimes you want to say, okay, enough of that. But uh, never, but he, it was never too much, Rupert. Never. He says he says homicide is a very serious matter. It's not to be taken lightly. It can be a homicide can be a life changing event, particularly for your victim. You know, so 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 it's it, at the core of it. I'm trying to make sure you understand that all three of these people are doing what they're doing because they have been given no other alternative to someone who is destroying not only their own lives, but the, some in some cases, the lives of others. And and there are four rules, as you know, already. Uh, for uh, the McMaster's uh, Conservatory. And before you can even proceed on your education, you have to examine yourself carefully by asking yourself the four inquiries. The first one is, is this murder necessary? Is there no other way? If you could find a way that someone's evil tweets are instantly and automatically posted on Twitter so that he, they would be revealed to be the scoundrel that they are, wouldn't that do the same job? So maybe you don't have to commit the murder because otherwise... Uh, if you could achieve it by other means, then that then it, murdering them is overkill in the most literal sense. <laughs> uh, two, um, uh, uh, have you given your victim every single chance to redeem themselves? And if you have and they don't take the bait, 
at all, then when someone be when someone becomes intolerable to the planet, then basically murder is actually involuntary suicide on their part. Uh, you've given them no choice. Three, who will mourn their loss? Is there someone who would really miss this person and their lives would be affected by it? If answer comes there none, if there's no one who will mourn them, well, then if you're having an electrocution, more power to you. And finally, finally, um, uh, will this deletion leave this planet a better place to be? And, and that's key as well. And, and the idea is that uh, may you say that the, the, that the world is improved by their effective departure. And if you can answer all four of those questions, then you're sort of at the beginning of saying, well, maybe this is something not only I could do, but maybe maybe I'm, it's a public service. So I'm sure we all have, look, we all have people, uh, all of us have at some time or another said, I could just kill him, I could just kill them. I could just kill her. We don't do anything about it. But we have had people in our lives, I, I believe this of every person, where you think on reflection, gee, you know, I wish I had never met them. Mm, I just wish mm -hmm. I'd been spared the pleasure mm -hmm. of meeting them. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't feel that way at first, but now, you know, if I could just have never encountered them, my life would be better. And then it's only a step from there to say, gee, I wish they'd never been born. They've mm -hmm. never done anybody any good. They only take pleasure in other people's pain. I just wish they had never existed. And so once you get to that, it's not a big leap from going from, I could just kill him to going, oh, I could just kill him. <laughs> I will say I had I had a boss once uh, many years ago when I lived in Miami that I can honestly say I could answer all four of those in the affirmative. And when I found out she had left this planet, my only thought was, thank God, yeah. because she won't be able to do this to someone else. Yeah, so, someone you know, else. It, it's, um, that's one of the reasons why, as I stated at the beginning, that I thought this was so delicious. It really is. Um, I think it's something everyone has thought of, truly. You know, you do think, oh, my gosh, if I'd never, ever encountered this person, it would be a great thing. So our three star students go on a journey to see if they can actually follow through with this. Yeah. And I do like at the beginning of the book, you set us up by telling us very seriously that they may or may not succeed in their quest. I actually guarantee at the very initial chapter, the Dean advises us that although we are showing you these people's student, uh, their, their um, studies at McMaster's, and that takes you halfway through the book. And then these students go out back into the real world where there are things yes. like uh, the police right. and, uh, and district attorneys yes. and prisons and death penalties. And they have to see, will this, education that I've received at this absolutely sumptuous place to spend time. We'd all like to go to McMaster's, you know? Yes. Yeah, the, the <laughs> dining hall has a uh, has a secret three-star uh, rating in the Guide Michelin. That's um, it. it's, it's unlisted, but, but it's got that rating. But, but can these methods work in the real world? And then you kind of rejoin the real world. So there's always, there's a series of tensions in the book that keep, I hope, the suspense going. The it first does. is, as you rightfully point out, you're told at the outset that while you're going to follow three of these students, at least one of them is not going to succeed. Mm -hmm. And that means that 
but you're not told which one. Nope. So that so as you're following their exploits, you think, oh, is, are you going to be the one that doesn't? Is, you look very confident right now. Is that false confidence? <laughs> um, and also, there's another um, uh, Damoclean sword hanging over their heads because um, the if you since McMaster's is a secret conservatory, the students themselves don't even know where it's located. Um, if you fail in your what we call your McMaster's thesis instead of your math, you know, which is your 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 deletion, your single deletion of this one person. Um, if you fail, you have to be expunged from the student mm -hmm. body, uh, and there's no makeup exam. <laughs> and, and, and so you, it is it is literally for these three very likable uh, students, uh, kill or be killed. And uh, and so there's that tension. Will will they fail at their mission? If they fail at their mission, will the school expunge them from the honor roll of their of the of the academy, and permanently? And um, and and so it's and at every turn there's the sense that it could all go awry, or maybe it's going to go beautifully. And then the fun is to see which ones turn out which way. That's right. That's right. So of the Ansloid characters, do you have one that is your favorite that, you know, is not a star pupil, but one one that is your favorite? Well, I do have uh, there one one character, Cubby Terhune, is just the opposite of a star pupil. You get the feeling he's going <laughs> you, you to be at McMaster's for life. You know, he'll never actually get out there. He's completely safe because he's so incompetent that they can't let him go out there in the world. So he's been there for a while, but my, I guess maybe my secret favorite, I am, I wrote a TV series. I had the privilege of writing a TV series for um, AMC uh, before they did Mad Men. It was their very first TV series, American Movie Classics, that channel. And it was called Remember When, W-E-N-N. -N. And it was about a radio station in 1939 in Pittsburgh and the struggles of this valiant troupe of radio actors. And it had no commercials and no laugh track. I wrote 56 episodes, Dan. I wow. can't believe it looking back. No one looked, looming over me, telling me you've got to submit the scripts in advance. And, and I wrote them in a And I had a favorite character who was a, 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 a former Broadway diva who had fallen on harder times and now was a radio star in Pittsburgh, which is a bit of a demotion from just the great. A little. But just a bit. And her name was Hillary Booth. And I have a character in this novel who is a, a, a true uh, movie star of the, uh, of the golden age of the movie studios, but whose career is being uh, destroyed by a studio head who um, is punishing her because she has rebuffed his advances, his romantic advances. And so he's seeing to it that she will never make another movie again, but he'll hold her to her contract and only put her uh, up for impossible roles that no one would ever want to take. He lets her, he says, you can do the voice of the pig in my animated version of Charlotte's Web. That's you, people are going to remember you as the voice of a pig. And, uh, and she's a little like the diva on Remember When. Her name is Doria May, and, and she's given to um, wonderful quips. Um, when, when, um, uh, when she sees the humble cottage that she's staying in, she insists that she has to have her decorator, Mr. Tony, come in to redecorate the place. And they say, well, if, if, if we bring him in to redecorate, we would have to kill him. 
because he can't know about this. She says, well, could you whip him instead? He might charge me less if you do that. <laughs> so that, that, that's, that's sort of her attitude towards life. The whole world spins around her, and I find her, I find her of the delicious people in the, in the book, uh, the, the, the most chock full of fun. I think so. And, and of course, as you said, she gets uh, some zinger one-liners and yeah. fun stuff, but they're very thought out too, which I love the fact it wasn't just some off the fluff. All of her one-liners or comebacks are intended for a specific reason. And that yeah, was not so just, delicious it's, to read. It's not, just, it's not just a joke a minute or anything. No, like that. It's, no. It's just, and what happens, by the way, Dan, is that when I get the, I believe in these characters, they're real to me. And just as with the TV series, Remember When, uh, it got to where I felt more like a stenographer who was taking down what they really would do in each given situation. And many times, her one-liners, I'm not making them up. I'm not inventing them. I Someone says something to her, which is a perfectly normal plot-based thing to say, and she'll say what only she would say back, and I'll go at home typing this. I'll go, it's oh, a good one. That's a very good one. <laughs> that was a good one. And I think she made it up, not me. And that's when I know I'm going, I'm, I'm, I'm going pretty well with a writing project when the characters are writing their own dialogue for me. And hopefully, as, as you noted earlier, in their own voice. Yes. Um, I used to find on Remember When, if they said, those two characters are not, one of the two characters you wrote a scene for is not available today. You have to have another character come in and do that scene. You know, A and B, you wrote right, it for A right, and B, right, right. but it's gonna have to be A and C. And right. I said, I can't do A and C. I'll have to rewrite the scene because B, C would never say what B says. It's, you that's can't right. just swap, right. swap dialogue. You can't do it. Not if so, you want to be successful. No, well, if you want to be true to your, if you want to be true to your characters and honor right. who they are. Yeah, that's right. Rupert, do you have a website that you would like to share or? Sure. Everybody come on over now. Right. Oh, Good. They oh. best. <laughs> no. uh, yes. You can find out more about the book and all things me uh, at uh, RupertHolmes.com. I spent months coming up with that name. That's R-U-P-E-R-T-H-O-L-M-E-S. All one word. Remember, there's an L in Holmes, like Sherlock. And uh, if you go to RupertHolmes.com, you'll see a beautiful watercolor tinted a map of the McMaster's campus floating there behind the latest goings on. I love it. I love it. And it's a very inventive website. I really appreciate that. Well, we have a lot of inventive people. <laughs> you know, the, the illustration, the novel is illustrated, uh, has some lovely drawings and it, it has, and the end pages, which means inside the front cover, inside the back cover, the end pages are a detailed, detailed map of the full McMaster's campus. And that was created um, the illustrations and the end pages were created by Anna Luizos, who designed the Broadway sets for two of my musical murder mysteries. The Mystery of Edwin Drood, re revived in 2012. She did that. And also one that I wrote with Candor and Ebb of Curtains and Cabaret fame. Right. Called, uh, of, uh, sorry, of uh, Chicago and Cabaret fame. The musical I wrote with them was called Curtains. It starred David Hyde Pierce as a detective in, with the trying to solve a murder in a musical out of town in Boston. And she, uh, since I've collaborated with her scenically on the Broadway stage, I thought it'd be wonderful to bring her to the pages of this book. There, yeah. There it is. It is yeah. wonderful. It is so detailed and so beautiful. And once again, here's the cover of the book, which is equally beautiful. Murder Your Employer. I appreciate the tips on how to murder my employer. I will say that I'm simply going to be a fan and I'm going to behave. 
Okay. I'm, I'm so glad you came and joined me, Rupert. Thank you so very much. It was my pleasure. And let it be number one next weekend. Well, it, I, I'm just thrilled to be on the charts. That's great. And I'm, by the way, hard at work on volume two right now, which Good. will be called Murder Your Mate. Oh, I love it. I look forward to that as well. Hang on for me just a second. Sure. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Out With Dan. You can find more information about this podcast and its host at outwithdan.com, on Twitter at outwithdan, and on Instagram and Facebook at gooutwithdan. This podcast is hosted by Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, and the theme music is provided by bensound.com. Join us again soon for the next episode of Out With Dan.